Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in today for Bill Nygut. Thank you for joining us. A reminder that you can log on to the GPB News Facebook page right now and not only hear us, you get to see us too. We'll monitor your comments there and you can also comment on our Twitter page at, at PoliticsGPB. Let's meet today's guests. Patricia Murphy is a columnist for Roll Call, The Daily Beast, and Garden Gun. She has a busy, busy life. Thank you for joining us, Patricia. Thanks for having me. State Representative Scott Holcomb is a Democrat who serves District 81, which is made up mostly of DeKalb County, but parts of Gwinnett as well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks. Joining Rewind for the first time is the former chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal and now a lobbyist, Chris Riley. Thanks for, ha- thanks for joining us for your debut, Chris. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a big day de- debut because sitting down with us for a few minutes, the newly announced candidate for U.S. Senate, the current mayor of Clarkston, Ted Terry. Ted, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Hey, Greg. Thanks. Uh, so let's start with the big news. You announced today that you yes. are joining the Democratic primary to challenge Senator, first-term Senator David Perdue. That's right. Why are you running? Well, I want to bring courage back to Washington, um, and you know the the number one thing that I'll say that I have learned as mayor of a small town is that uh, there's you can you can learn a lot by listening to people. And the senator, um, uh, Senator Purdue's been senator for the last five years, has had no town hall meetings. Um, he says he has select meetings with certain people. I imagine most of those meetings that he's having in D.C. or back home are with people who are either as campaign contributors, corporate lobbyists, or corporate PACs. And, you know, there's something to be said about politicians who do a lot of talking, a lot of tweeting, um, but not enough listening. And I want to be a senator for all of Georgia, and I don't want to be afraid, and I want to hear from people who might disagree with me. You said you wanted to set the marker for what it means to be a progressive in in Georgia right now, and you're running on a liberal platform that will probably pull the field to the left Mm -hmm. on criminal justice, on environmental Mm -hmm. regulations, on immigration policies, you name it. Um, You've got a, you you, you likely have a stance on it. So what are your main priorities? Well, I think those positions are pretty um, mainstream, actually. Um, But, uh, you know, we we were the first city in Georgia to decriminalize marijuana uh, three years ago. Um, A lot of other cities have followed suit. Um, at the time, that was a, uh, an issue that, you know, you can't do that. Um, you're going to turn into a drug haven. Uh, Clarkson's one of the 50 safest cities in Georgia. Um, and, you know, that, I think, actually is actually a, a pretty popular, you know, uh, you know, initiative and policy across the board. Uh, criminal justice reform, people, we should re- be reducing uh, unnecessary incarceration. Um, transitioning to clean energy. Um, if you look at Georgia, Georgia doesn't have oil wells. We don't have coal mines. We don't have fracking wells. Kind of have some wind off the coast, but we do have is a lot of land and a lot of sun. Our natural resource um, is solar energy, and we're the third best um, state potential for uh, actually producing solar energy. And that energy and that investment is going to go actually mostly to rural Georgia. And there's a lot of people out in rural Georgia who have been left behind. A lot of the investment in energy is focusing in Atlanta. And I talk to people all the time that feel like there's they're not getting any of the attention of the investment. And I heard the other day I heard from um, uh, a public comment at the Public Service Commission. And it was the economic development director from Twiggs County. And she came to thank the Public Service Commission, the all Republican Public Service Commission, for getting Georgia power to install a big solar farm in Twiggs County, middle Georgia, that doubled the tax digest in one year. That means the Board of Education can now pay for STEM education. That means the county commission has more money for vital services and is creating jobs and value over the long term. And by the way, it's clean energy. So there's no coal uh, ash ponds to clean up that are going to cost billions of dollars. I want to drill down a little bit more into one of the topics you mentioned, which is decriminalizing um, uh, marijuana in yep. Clarkston. Yep. Um, you were the first city to have that sort of policy, and as you mentioned, Atlanta, Athens, some other bigger cities followed suit. But you faced some backlash, and I can't pa- pass up this opportunity <laughs> because some of it was from Governor Deal's administration. Oh, that's um, all right. What was, what, talk about how you went through that and, and, and why you think, and I, we can hear from Chris <laughs> afterwards, but why you think um, that policy is the right one. Well, that was a very interesting time. Um, I actually read a, an article. I was inspired by a, a council in Florida, West Palm Beach. That's where Mar-a-Lago is. And they passed a $100 ticket-only offense for marijuana possession. That's one of the wealthiest counties 
in Florida and maybe even the country. The second home of President Trump. Yeah, exactly. And so I said, well, why can't Clarkston do a, a fine only for marijuana possession? Why do we have to arrest someone? And so I got with my city attorney and we did some research. And guess what? In 1983, the year I was born, all right, I was born in March of 1983. So this bill was probably passed around the same time I was born. A law was passed to give concurrent jurisdiction to municipal courts on how to punish less than one ounce possession of marijuana. Okay. All right. So there we go. So state law says that cities can decide how to punish. And we opted to say, you know what, we can't say a $0 fine because that would be de facto legalization, but we're not going to create a punitive fine. And we're going to direct our officers to do ticket-only offenses. And not only, I think, has it reduced the level of incarceration for nonviolent victimless you know, offenses like possessing a small amount of marijuana, but has created a greater sense of community policing and community trust in Clarkston. And I imagine in other communities it's going to enhance trust between the community and police. Governor Deal is one of the officials who was who was critical of, of that. What was it like when it when that came across your, your transom? Well I appreciate it. I didn't know my political juices would get flowing so quickly on the show, but I'm <laughs> promised to behave. Um, Welcome to the, to the Senate race, first and foremost, <laughs> Mr. You. Mayor. Uh, the second thing, the Deal administration had a history of, of with Clarkston from uh, our refugee uh, centers out there. And so we, we had a, a known history there. The second thing is we're a, we're a state of laws. We're a nation of laws and a state of laws. But the governor just disagreed uh, fundamentally with recreational use of marijuana. And so, therefore, it was a fundamental opinion of enforcing that law. And we would have uh, rather taken it up in the state legislature and passed it uh, through the legislative branch of government, have it signed or vetoed through the executive branch, and then either litigated or, or, or adjudicated through the judicial branch rather than having the city just take the initiative. But, you know, that's water under the bridge. Well, decriminalization, not legalization. So it's a very clear distinction here. Um, and it actually, in fact, if you look at a lot of places around Georgia, particularly in rural Georgia, you know, judges have been, in essence, decriminalizing marijuana on their own. Um, they've been doing it through just the digital branch and how they decide to punish and do diversionary programs. Um, but what I would say, you know, to Mr. Riley is um, if the war on drugs has been successful, um, if anyone can say, yep, this has been successful, then you would continue the status quo. And I'm reminded of, uh, a, you know, a, a moment in my Queer Eye episode, season two, on Netflix, where I was forced to do a rap battle with the Georgia high school debate champion, 16-year-old mm -hmm. from Concord, Georgia, an even smaller town from rural Georgia. And he turned to me and said, you know, you're the mayor that decriminalized marijuana. I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative Republican, but I'd vote for you because of that. And so we see a huge gulf, generational divide in the attitudes of criminal justice reform, marijuana use. And in, whether you want to argue about legalization or medical or decriminalization, the status quo cannot stay, and we've got to change that. Let's talk about real quick the Queer Eye episode you were on, because you, you yeah. said to me um, for the story that published today that if people want to get to know you, they should watch that full 55-minute right. episode because you were unguarded, vulnerable in a way. That's right. Well, as a politician, I embarrass myself on a daily basis, Greg. Um, and <laughs> so there was no shortage of embarrassing moments um, in that, uh, you know, they literally were, you know, in my dirty laundry. Uh, <laughs> Which is a good prelude to any statewide campaign. Not, yet. not yet they're not, but they will be. Yeah. It, it didn't go to my trash yet. Um, but, you know, the, the gratifying thing about that episode and that experience is, one, is it highlighted, you know, the community of Clarkston and what we stand for, um, our compassionate and welcoming approach to refugees who, you know, quite honestly are the most securely vetted immigrants to this country, 22 levels of screening before you can actually be admitted into the receiving pool of then you can be welcomed to start your life over, fleeing persecution, violence because of religion, politics, or otherwise, or ethnicity. Um, and, you know, getting messages from people around the country, around the world, who watched that episode and said, you know, it's so great to see politicians that are willing to um, be compassionate and welcoming the people who, through no fault of their own, have been forced to flee their homes, their national boundaries. They've left their country and are in this purgatory. And a lot of them probably will never be able to go home. And it's not to say that America should take in all the refugees, uh, but we have been the leader up until just the last couple of years in welcoming and helping new Americans start their lives over. And our experience in Clarkston has been a positive one. If you look at the community in Clarkston, 
You have Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, all the religions, 40 different nationalities, so many different ethnicities, all living within proximity to each other. You call it the most diverse square mile in the nation, right? We, we like to say we're known as, because I honestly could never yeah. statistically approve that. Um, <laughs> although I was in a, a, a mayor's meeting uh, on refugees at the United Nations, and Mayor Bill de Blasio was there, and I gave my little like spiel about Clarkston. We're known as most ethnically diverse square mile in America, and he gets up, well, you know, five stops on a Manhattan subway line is the most ethnically diverse square mile in America. So I gave it's him that. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to sugarcoat this. This is, I mean, I'm not going to, I don't want to challenge what, what the mayor's saying, but from a, no, please do. from the executive branch of government, the Obama administration could not even tell us who was coming, how many was coming, and when they were coming, when we would ask. So back during the, the glory days of when refugees were coming, they were not going under, under any kind of review process. They were coming on block, and we simply want to know who they were, how many they were coming, and names, et cetera, because we had a problem of putting uh, existing rival uh, gang members from other countries next to each other in DeKalb County that were, ca- were causing you quite a scene. safety issue. So yeah. I don't want to sugarcoat it that much. Uh, we, um, I, you know, obviously there's a miscommunication there because local mayors um, are consulted on the resettlement process. So we knew exactly who's coming, when they're coming, um, where they're coming from. And the issue of gangs, I mean, we haven't had the issue we had in the 90s of having Croats and uh, Bosnians living in Clarkson. There, there was a little bit of tension at the time, um, but there's no rival gangs in the refugee resettlement process. And I will say that under Obama, there was the Syria enhanced review, because remember, all of this was about Syrian refugees at the time. And people had no clue about what Syria is you know, and was yeah. a modern democracy, a modern society that has been decimated by civil war. But the Obama administration put in extra vetting for Syrians, and only 10,000 actually came through. Um, Welcome to the race, Mayor Ted. Thank you. Um, And doing my deep dive on Mayor Ted, uh, when I was coming in here, I read an interview after you did the query episode and asked what was next, and you said you probably would run for governor. Yeah. And why have you decided to change course? It's a very different job to be in D.C. instead of being in the governor's mansion. Well, I understand that um, Stacey Abrams is probably going to go for a rematch with Brian Kemp in a couple of years, and I think she'd be a great person to run against Brian Kemp. So I don't want to get in the way of that. Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, uh, Stacey Abrams said she wasn't running for Senate. Um, I've looked at the names that were mentioned, you know, or who have announced or who may be running, and I um, am left wanting for more bold vision, more progressive um, bona fides. And I'm running on my record as the mayor of Clarkson, what I've done. And for government, for Georgians who are going to be deciding in the primary, contra- contrast yourself with Teresa Tomlinson, who's already in this race. Well, I think you have to look at our records. Um, you know, the um, uh, I would say that um, there are there's a history there. So, number one. Um, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I'll start by saying that. Um, I've worked for the Georgia AFL-CIO. I've worked for um, the Obama campaign. Um, I've worked for the Sierra Club. I've been actually in the trenches and you know on the front lines as, and pushing advocacy forward while also being mayor. Um, no rest for the weary uh, for myself. Um, the mayor in Clarkson gets paid $6,000 a year. Um, so for me, it truly is public service, um, but something that's I felt um, was an opportunity to push the needle forward on policies. And I think if you look at Clarkston compared to a lot of other cities, I think we've been on the forefront of a, a lot of initiatives that I think have proven to have been very successful. Let's talk about one of those contrasts so far. The, bi- the biggest one that I can see so far is on impeachment. And your opponent, Mayor Tomlinson, is, is calling for inquiries. And we can play that audio right here. And they're exactly what the Founding Fathers talked about when they said, we're not going to put all these restraints of the judiciary in a, a typical criminal prosecution with juries and indictment papers and so forth, because if indeed you have such a thing, you've got to move and you've got to move quickly to mitigate the risk of harm to the country. And so for me, it's not political. If this was a Democrat and independent doing the same type of thing, I would be right up here. Again, it may be because I'm a lawyer, but I'm telling you, this is the boldest threat of executive abuse of power I think we've ever seen. That was Mayor Teresa Tomlinson, who, who's the, uh, the other announced Democrat so far in this race. And you say, leave, leave it for the ballot box. Democrats should focus on the election, not impeachment. Well, my name is Ted Terry, and I'm not a lawyer, um, so maybe that's my, my difference of opinion there. Um, I, you know, I've read the Mueller report. Um, I've seen where the president stands 
um, and has acted on certain issues. Um, and I think that uh, I would like to see uh, uh, him defeated at the ballot box in 2020, um, as well as Mitch McConnell and David Perdue. Well, Ted, Mayor Ted, thank you for joining us and good luck with your campaign. Thank you. Let's get a quick break out of the way. Coming up, we're going to talk about more about Ted Terry's campaign and dig a little deeper into threats of boycotts against a major Georgia company. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB. We're back in one minute. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start. And by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air. We'll talk about the Yiddish language production of Fiddler on the Roof that's currently off-Broadway. My guest will be Joel Gray, who directed it, and Stephen Skybell, who stars as Tevya. And we'll hear songs from the forthcoming cast recording. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in today for Bill Nygut, who's on a well-deserved vacation. We're joined today by political columnist Patricia Murphy, Democratic State Representative Scott Holcomb, and former Chief of Staff for Governor Nathan Deal, Chris Riley. Let's dive into what we just heard from Mayor Ted Terry, who has joined the Democratic race for U.S. Senate against, against David Perdue. Um, Scott, Representative Holcomb, you've run a statewide race for Secretary of State. What do you think? And there is a crowded field, too. Is there room for him in, in this contest? That, uh, when I ran, it was in 2006, and <laughs> candidly, I had no idea what I was doing, which is <laughs> probably played out in the results. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, it is not easy, and, and I know Chris will affirm that, as Georgia is a huge state. But uh, just as the Republican map, you need to be savvy in terms of where you go and send, spend your time. The same thing is true for the Democratic map, which is effectively the cities in, in our state. And, and so Ted needs to work very hard to uh, build up support in those communities. And I'm not surprised that he entered the race. I, I've expected the entire time that we were going to have a competitive primary. I know um, Teresa has been running for more than a year, announced uh, for less than a year, but she's been at it for some time. But you've heard rumors that a lot of other folks were going to get in. And I think you're going to see at least one, two, three, maybe four more people get in before this is said and done. And I tend to think the primaries are healthy. I think it helped Abrams uh, uh, the last cycle, boosted her strength. And and for Ted specifically, uh, he's going to have to navigate the gender issue. He's going to have to really work through that because if you look at the results from 2018, generally speaking, you did not want to be a male in the Democratic primary. They, they they got walled pretty bad. In 2020, it could be the year of the woman, too. Certainly. Yeah, for sure. Although it's entirely possible there could be more than one woman in the Democratic primary. And, and I likely, think that that could work to yeah. his advantage quite a bit. And, and somebody like Mayor Ted, I see a ton of potential in terms of someone who could raise grassroots money nationally. He has a very clear identity, a clear sense of what he believes in. He's a mayor, so he's got a really tidy record that voters can review. And you you can discount the fact that he's been on Queer Eye, um, but it would be very easy for an activist in California to watch that episode and say, oh, God, I love that guy. I want to give him $15. So I think he's got a little bit of an X factor that some of the other candidates who we've been hearing about won't have. Um, he's not well known. He's uh, got a lot of work to do, to Scott's point, but I think he's got a little star by his name, in my opinion. Chris, let's talk about that raising the profile, because as you know, you ran two campaigns for, for Governor Deal back when he was a, the first one back when he was a congressman. Even for a congressman who's well known in his district in North Georgia, it can be hard to, to raise that profile. That's right. Our base was the 9th Congressional District, which was back in 2010, 80% of the primary of the Republican Party was north of I-20. And I think the, the Democratic primary for Senate is just going to be entertaining now with Mayor Ted in the race. So you're I mean, getting your popcorn out. I, I enjoyed the first 20 minutes, but somebody needs to keep him in check as to, you know, the, the city of Clarkston's endeavors. And I'm sure that we will have people on our side keeping him in check. Uh, but it will be entertaining. 
he does need to keep his uh, profile up. He does need to get around the state. What happens in Clarkston may not be what happens down in Darien, Georgia, or what happens in Savannah. I mean, he's got to get around the state. As Scott and Trisha know, it's a big state. And so he's got uh, the, the gun just went off for him. But nevertheless, I think it's an uphill battle for anybody. We have a proven successful U.S. senator that has taken the last six years and has led in the U.S. Senate and has led for the state and has really done an exceptional job. Came in as a as a, C, a former CEO of a, of a major company and brought an outside approach in. And those type of pro-business policies have played well and has, and has produced well for Georgia. So Senator Perdue is going to be a, a, a well-heeled over the last uh, cycle, you can see how great of a fundraiser he is, how well that message Close received. Close to $5 million, yeah. if I recall. And his message is going to be very well received. I think uh, he's just going to be a tough candidate to be. You made a, I think it was a joke, but it might not have been. You said something about going through trash. When, 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 <laughs> but, but when once the campaign begins, and if, and if the other side, if the other party sees you as a real threat, the guns are out, right? Uh, it, it's... Uh, it's it's open up the doors. It's just nothing is held back. 2010 taught me an awful lot, uh, whether it's your family, unfortunately, uh, or or what. But everything is on the table. As much as you want to take your children and and your family off the table, unfortunately, everything is on the table to be reviewed, looked at, uh, and and discussed. And uh, yes, at the campaign, we had uh, several times we caught people going through the campaign trash out in the dumpster. Uh, there, oh, so you weren't kidding. Anger. So. It, it happens, and you just, uh, unfortunately, that's just politics. And, you know, you may not participate in it, and we don't uh, participate in it, but it, there's people out there that do. Representative, I don't know if you describe yourself as a, as, as a progressive or a centrist or what, but you are known for pushing some bipartisan policies that we'll talk about later. Are you worried when you see this field, because you mentioned, everyone else mentioned, it's going to grow. Um, do you worry that with, with Mayor Terry getting in the race that it will start to shift even more to the left in a way that could hurt the party in next November? Not really. And, and uh, the way that I look at this is I think in many ways the Senate race is going to be t- determined by the top of the ticket. There's very little crossover. And, and so whoever wins Georgia uh, in the presidential race is, is probably going to carry with them the Senate candidate. The, there aren't too many people that I can think of that are going to vote for Trump and then probably pick a Democrat in terms of the Senate and vice versa. So in many ways, these senatorial candidates are, it's going to be luck of the draw of who ultimately wins the presidential race. But I don't think it's going to hurt us. I think it's going to be a very lively and competitive election next year, and I'm looking forward to it. We'll put a pin on that one, but we'll be talking much more about this race in the weeks and months and year plus to come. I want to get to another topic that blew up overnight, a group that is upset with Home Depot co-founder Bernie Marcus, a Republican mega donor who is likely to help fund Trump's re-election campaign, is threatening a boycott of the Atlanta-based business. Um, Trump mocked the boycotters and found himself in a curious alliance with George Democrats, who noted that the other co-founder of Home Depot, Arthur Blank, of course, is a Democratic donor. Patricia, I'd love your take on this. Is this a case of a knee-jerk reaction from the boycotters? Isn't that what Twitter is for? <laughs> I think that's the whole point Incendiary of it. Incendiary reaction? Yes, exactly. Well, and I think that um, if you look into Bernie Marcus's record of philanthropy in the state, um, even Democrats in the state have been very grateful for the work that he's done that's apolitical, including a whole lot of money into health care that's really made a difference at Grady Hospital. Um, and I think, uh, although I think the, the split between Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank uh, in terms of where they are with the president uh, is very uh, reminiscent of the split within uh, the Jewish uh, voting base right now. I think there's a major split about uh, the president versus his policies, uh, the president's policies toward Israel, incredibly pro-Israel. And I've spoken with many Jewish voters for whom that's their one issue, and that's the one reason they support him, and they have no uh, thoughts of not supporting and the And we should remind the audience that, that both Bernie Marcus and Arthur Plank are not only the Jewish, but they're major do- donors yes. to Jewish causes. Yes. And their names are on businesses and, and uh, sorry, um, non profits and community centers and all that. Yeah, exactly. All over Atlanta. Exactly. Um, but I think in terms of Home Depot, I mean, there are uh, boycotts every day over Chick-fil-A and their founders' policies. And there are, that's actually not an ambiguous uh, situation, but um, Chick-fil-A was voted the most popular uh, fast food restaurant, restaurant in the country. So they're doing okay. I think, you know, a boycott has more to do with the people who are boycotting than the people being boycotted. 
Chris, you have a very unique perspective on all this because uh, you were Governor Deal's top aide when a tax break that would have benefited Delta Airlines got scuttled, at least temporarily, uh, because they intervened in a gun rights debate and severed ties with the NRA. Uh, should companies face that kind of backlash for the for the decisions they make if they, if they kind of wait? N- not that Home Depot did because this was a, the founder, but not no one directly associated with Home Depot anywhere. But if a company does kind of wade into political debate, is that fair for the company to get face a boycott? Well, speaking specifically when it came to Delta Airlines and the NRA, Delta found itself in the middle of the, the NRA debacle during the, of no fault of their own. And then they compounded the issue by tweeting back. Yeah. I mean, tweet, you can, I don't even know how to be we cute We already here. talked about Twitter yeah. being a danger. It's a knee-jerk reaction, but uh, they should not have tweeted back uh, their comment. And, and by doing so, not everyone uh, was on board. Uh, all pun intended, with with the comments that, that came back. And so they found themselves in the middle of this very heated and contentious Second Amendment discussion that was going on all around the the obvious of school safety at the time around our country of no fault of their own. They had no indication of the political ramification of what the tweet in return was going to say. And so trying to put the genie back in the bottle was difficult, and rarely you can do that, and we and proved we could not. Uh, so uh, it's it's a tough situation, but in regard to Home Depot, you know Bernie Marcus is what Chris said. He has done more for for more causes in in Georgia and more healthcare causes that don't even stop at the at the party line. They go across party lines. And Arthur Blank has contributed just as many Republicans, I would say, as he has Democrats. So a lot of companies across Georgia, when it comes to campaigns, will hedge their bet and and bet on more than one horse in the race. I loved her comment. What Patricia said it's it's not the the reality of the tweeters, or it's just the boycotters. It's the not the boycotted. It's the boycotters. That's the cause. They've got their earned media. They've got their fame, but they've done it all at the behest of of two quality men who've done a lot for our state and our nation. And the sad part was it was an AJC article about the philanthropy and about what Bernie Marcus wanted to do with with the finances that he had earned before he passed away. And that article by my colleague Matt Kempner said that uh, Bernie Marcus who's a billionaire, um, already a philanthropist, was going to give away most of the rest of his money um, uh, to, to causes and, and it included President Trump and Republican causes and he's he's long been a, a GOP mega donor but he, he, he was kind of being more broad in this saying that he was going to give it to a, an array of causes. Uh, Representative Holcomb, I want to get you on this too because last year some Democrats um, we're boycotting small businesses like a local brewery for the act of hosting Brian Kemp for an event during the campaign. Um, how do you feel about that? Should should voters, I guess, punish local businesses for hosting or even contributing to, to candidates? I think uh, the, the, the general statement I would make is there should be a direct nexus between what you're trying to achieve in the boycott and the end result. So with Bernie Marcus, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because he's retired from the company. So that doesn't, that doesn't go very far. But in terms of uh, using your pur- purchasing power to support your values, I think that's valid and reasonable. And if people have an issue with a type of business and, and their political views, they certainly can change where they shop and who they go to. We have a competitive marketplace. Um, so for business people, I think that they have to be aware of it, and I think most of them are. And they try to navigate very carefully of either donating to both sides or trying to stay as apolitical as possible. But we're in hyperpartisan times here, and it's not going away. Some companies, Patricia, are, are shying, tiptoeing around this, and some companies are, 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 are not. And just this week, we had news from Atlanta-based, for now Atlanta-based, SunTrust Banks, um, that it's severing ties with the private prison industry, and that made a lot of waves. Yeah. And well, and if you look at um, when boycotts are effective and when they're not, if it's coming from the top, if it's corporate leadership making choices, as Scott said, based on their values, um, it can have an effect or it can certainly send a message. And um, that's when uh, companies like entertainment companies talking about boycotting uh, the state of Georgia over an industry that they've been trying to court for a long time. Um, I think that those can have an effect. But again, it needs to be uh, in it needs to be, first of all, a clean shot. The Home Depot thing just makes no sense. Um, 
And then it also needs to be something that they're willing to follow through on. If these edu- these entertainment companies don't move after they've made these waves, they lose the power of that threat very quickly. Well, we'll be watching to see if this gets anywhere. I want to I shift gears. Oh, Private prisons. It. I want to weigh yeah, in on that because I have a bill on that. Uh, that's to pending, end it, right? To end it, yes. Is I do not think that there should be a profit motive to incarcerate people. And it's something that, that is resonating with people across party lines. So, Chris, I'd like to ask you about that one because um, this this topic came up repeatedly, sure. and, and and your former boss um, was very instrumental in criminal justice initiatives over the eight years of his of his of his uh, time in the governor's mansion. Um, but you never went as far as to sever ties with the with the private prison industry. Well, what we what we found into in terms of governing the state in regard to the the management of the prisons that we have in Georgia versus running the prisons and incarceration is, is the incarceration part is, is actually is done uh, obviously in our court system but the management of the prisons was was put into place with with RFP contracts through Department of Corrections in certain locations around the state because it was done during a time when the state didn't have the money during the recession to actually fund a lot of those and so we actually had to turn to the private sector for assistance in doing that and that at the time they were doing it cheaper and better than we were doing it at the time uh, in in the state and within the department and so it was the management and the day-to-day running of the prison not just incarcerating and the keeping of um, I, that, that that sounds good I love what Representative Holcomb said because you shouldn't be former Governor Deal says this a lot I mean Nathan goes there shouldn't be a profit to uh, keeping someone either on probation or, or, or behind 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 bars, and, and that's absolutely true. But we're talking about the management of or the management of our probation system. So we got to be careful what we incentivize here. Are we incentivizing incarceration, or are we actually paying for the management of? So we're five to ten years since some of those contracts have been signed. Do you think there's appetite from Republicans next year, maybe, uh, to to support uh, Representative Holcomb's bill? But well, could we have to look to go to DOAS and pull the RFP and see what the uh, what the contract is? I don't, I'm rough top of my head. I, I just don't know what they are. Are they five years? Or are they extend? How they extended? And you know whether or not they are going to be put back on the public market. I just don't know. And, and an audit did find that the state prisons are cheaper than the private ones. That was just done last year. So it undermines the argument that they are more effective. This is, um, I've been out covering the presidential candidates. Mm-hmm. This is an issue that we're hearing from Democratic candidates again and again. This is absolutely a question and an issue on the national stage. And so uh, when we're um, when you're listening to the next national debates, listen for this issue, the question of private prisons. It's really something that's been embraced uh, by the Democratic presidential candidates and is being pushed very, very hard at the national level. But I would take this point to say to my Democratic friends around the table that we do have a Carl Vincent economic development, economic impact study on the criminal justice reform that has taken place in Georgia and the economic impact it has annually to the state, which is roughly 29 to $31 million a year. Hmm. And, and this will continue to be an issue, I, I, I guess, too, in the 2020 camp, 2022 campaign as well. I know it's early, but um, we got the fundraising reports from the two main players of last year's gubernatorial race. Brian Kemp raised $730,000 in the three months after the legislative session. That's when state office holders can't raise cash. Um, Stacey Abrams, who didn't have the same prohibition, raised about $4 million for her Fair Fight Action Group over the last six months. Patricia, those those numbers for both sides are nothing to sneeze at. The Stacey Abrams numbers, almost $4 million, is just a monster number for a woman who has no race. <laughs> she has no <laughs> job that she's campaigning for. And to get that amount of money is absolutely eye-popping. It certainly puts uh, Teresa Tomlinson's numbers in a different light. Um, Teresa Tomlinson raised about $500,000. Yes, for an actual Senate campaign Mm -hmm. that is on the actual ballot in 2020. Um, It also answers uh, a lot of questions for us about why Stacey Abrams has been all over the country. We talked at some point on this show about why she was in L.A. talking to entertainment executives and the understanding was that somebody out there must have a lot of money uh, for her to be fundraising from. And there is one, a single donor gave her $1 million. A California donor gave a million dollars to her cause. So it's about 25% of that money is from, from uh, one woman in California. So it's pretty, it's very impressive. We're talking about 2022, Representative Holcomb. What's your gut? Is, is Stacey Abrams gearing up for a, a rematch? 
I think so. Um, and Stacy was nationally known when she ran in 2018, but now she's a national figure. And the fundraising is not going to be a problem for her whatsoever. I think the only variable that might interrupt this would be if she's considered by a Democratic um, presidential candidate to potentially be a VP. And I, I could see that because she brings something uh, to the mix. South, uh, she would energize the minority vote. So uh, that could definitely happen. But if it doesn't, I think that uh, the very strong odds would be to bet on her going in 2022. Well, I think she did exactly what we all thought she was going to do, travel the country and raise money. And that's what she did. She took her message. Uh, unfortunately, it was unsuccessful in the state, but she took it nationally to the audience that were very receptive to her and uh, were, as what Tricia said, wrote nice checks. So uh, she did exactly what I thought she would do, and, and she's going to continue to do that. Governor Kemp did ex- exactly what I thought he would do. He turned to Georgians who voted for him to, to donate to him. And so um, he's doing exactly what he needs to do. He'll remain in the state. He'll continue to bring jobs to the state and govern the state. And as we move forward into in the, the next 2022 cycle, his number one political day-to-day challenge is fundraising. It never stops. Former Governor Nathan Deal despised me when I would ask that question. <laughs> call yeah. time. Call time's on your schedule. Call time's <clears throat> on your schedule. I can see Governor Kemp looking at Tim Fleming now going, no. you know. I, but it's, it's the daily grind. He doesn't have the luxury of going around the country because he's elected governor. But, he's here to govern. But it is easier for him to, to raise that cash now that he's a sitting governor, isn't it? Well, it's a it's a tad bit easier. I'm not going to lie to you, but you know it's still difficult because you're you're going to have to raise what twenty twenty five million dollars. Well, and I think I, I mean I think the numbers inside his report show it is a little easier because people who have business in front of the state might be interested in giving you and some lobbyists. money and lobbyists, business interests. Um, they're not hedging their bets. They're going to be going with him, and it certainly points to an advantage that he's going to have over any Democrat who gets into this race. Um, but it also, uh, even though he raised a lot of money last cycle, he was still outspent by Stacey Abrams by more than $5 million. And so uh, any Republican in this state is going to have to really do some work to overcome the national spotlight that's going to be on the state. One other tidbit, Patricia, I want to hit before we go to our next break is the AJC's James Salzer sniffed out a, a, a little inkling from the federal of uh, the financing reports that showed that feds has seized $80,000 from the campaign account of suspended insurance commissioner Jim Beck, who faces fraud charges. He said he's he's innocent of those. Um, he's facing a lot of scrutiny, though, from the, from the federal authorities. He's facing a lot of scrutiny. And then any dollar that the federal officials are looking at, they want to know not only uh, the fact that he got it, but who gave it. And so this has the potential to ensnare not only uh, his campaign and his apparatus, but anybody who was involved on the other side of those transactions. And one other um, Republican who didn't raise that much cash was Ed Setzler, but he said it's not because he's stepping down from office, but because he was, um, in his words, quote unquote, sickened by fundraising efforts by abortion rights supporters. What do you make of that, Chris? I'm going to give Ed the benefit of the doubt and say <laughs> that it's a brilliant move on Ed's part. I've, I've, I've talked to Ed over the course of several years and tried to, you know, and to get this vote or that vote to support the governor's agenda. And, and uh, so I'm going to give Ed the benefit of the doubt that this was a, a move for earned media to get the AJC and other media outlets to talk about his not raising money, to mm-hmm. elevate the game so the people who were going to donate to him will now donate tenfold because they're afraid he's not going to be able to get reelected. And I think it's a brilliant move by Ed, and kudos to Ed. So if it was a shrewd move at work, because here we are talking about it right now. We're playing chess. He's playing checkers. <laughs> well, let's get our last break out of the way. Coming up, we're going to talk about one of Representative Holcomb's priorities and a new legal fight against the Affordable Care Act. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB. We're back in one minute. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks.
The White House has a new press secretary, Stephanie Grisham. She's known for working well with reporters while also hitting back hard in defense of those she's worked for. I think she likes a challenge. I think she likes the chaos of it. And she's very good at kind of crisis management. Now she takes on her biggest challenge yet. I'm Ari Shapiro. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in today for Bill Nygut, who's apparently watching this <laughs> on Facebook. Hi, Bill. <laughs> we are joined today by political columnist Patricia Murphy, Democratic State Representative Scott Holcomb, and the former Chief of Staff for Governor Nathan Deal, Chris Riley. Thanks again for joining us. So much of what we focus on are the divisive issues, and understandably so. But Representative Holcomb, a measure you sponsored just took effect last week. It requires law enforcement agencies to save evidence gathered from sexual assaults for up to 50 years. And it passed with the overwhelming support from both sides of the aisle. Can you talk about that? Unanimous uh, in both chambers. Yes, it's something that... um our state can be very proud of. We started this effort in 2016 and passed legislation to address the backlog, which is a national issue where sexual assault kits have not been tested uh, as quickly as they should have been, but we fixed it. Um, Governor Deal worked with us to increase the budget and we put resources towards testing once we knew how bad the problem was, which was thousands of kits. And so this year, uh, prompted by a CNN investigation, which looked at how kits were handled across the country, Uh, I saw that there were issues of preservation of evidence. So once you have the evidence, you have to preserve it long enough that you can bring cases and, and, and bring prosecutions forward. Thankfully, Georgia was not on the list. We were not one of one of the jurisdictions that was cited as has, having a problem, but I wanted to make sure that we wouldn't be. So I worked with law enforcement, worked with prosecutors, worked with defense attorneys. Uh, interestingly, they were very supportive because DNA evidence can be used to exonerate individuals as well. And then, of course, worked with uh, survivors advocates and, and survivors themselves. So we passed this law and Georgia now has one of the most progressive laws on this in the country. And, and uh, I'm very um, thankful that it was passed and it's going to make a difference. There's no doubt in my mind, one, it's already working. And two, 10, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to solve cases and we're going to read about it in the AJC because of the law that we put in place this year. Treasure, every so often we see some consensus under the gold dome. Well, and frequently it's on an issue that actually makes a difference in people's lives. And it's typically only brought to light by people who have either experienced it themselves or known somebody who's gone through something. And you just have to sit there and say, it, it can't be this way. It can't be this way. So um, many thanks to Mr. Holcomb for this legislation. It will make a huge difference in the lives of thousands of women um, and potentially anybody who's already who's been wrongly convicted. I mean, this the science is there and it's so frequent that the legislation doesn't catch up to the science and finally it has in this case um and it's also i think criminal justice this is a more narrow uh sliver of criminal justice as a whole our criminal justice system has major deep unfair flaws in it and um it's a great example of governor deal who was at the forefront of criminal justice reform in our state and that became a model for federal legislation that was supported from a breadth from cory booker to rand paul to donald trump so this is an issue that I think is that we're only beginning to scratch the surface of, but we do have leadership in the state that we should really be proud of. Chris, I want to piggyback on that. Do you think as, as you and the governor, Governor Deal, look back on his eight years, is criminal justice his, his, his proudest legacy? This is one that he's uh, extremely proud of and the one that he gets most emotional about talking about it. It's, it's a generational uh, reform. Uh, he always talks about if you want to reform education, uh, you know, start, start here and then it work your way back. So uh, it's one that he's very proud of. He's leading a couple of national efforts and on commissions as chairs uh, talking about the issue uh, in Congress. And so uh, he and I actually made a, a trip last week up to uh, D.C. It's kind of a nostalgic trip for both of us going yeah, I don't through. think he misses it too much, though, does no, he? No, he or I miss that at all. And so uh, we went up, and, and he was on a panel with Judge Boggs, and so... He is very passionate about it, and we're extremely pleased. It's it's a bipartisan uh, effort here in Georgia, one with results, as, as what Scott talks about, and one that Governor Kemp is continuing to move forward on. I think Governor Kemp's going to focus on the mental health component. Uh, well, uh, what Scott brought up earlier about the uh, rape kit backlog was uh, was brought to our attention, and we the governor immediately put money there. We were unaware of it, 
and then uh, Scott t immediately took the leadership role and, and went forward as as well as Senator Underman. Uh, you know, Senator Underman is not is not afraid of anything, as you <laughs> as we all know her. Uh, so uh, it's one that that needed to be addressed, and and so Scott, thanks for doing that and continuing those efforts. But criminal justice reform does pull at his heartstrings, and one that he's probably the most most proud of. I should note too. I mean, while this was unanimous, uh, the first stab at this um, was a little harder for fight, and you needed help from from prominent people from both sides of aisle. One of them, not only the governor Jill sign it, but one of them is House Speaker David Ralston, who who really kind of picked up the mantle. He did. Speak, it would not have passed without Speaker Ralston's help. That's that's a fact, and I've said that every every day since since it passed. And and with Senator Unterman, we were not we did not see this the same way in 2016, and and she was not initially supportive. Ultimately, she voted for the bill. This year, very interestingly, after it passed the House, a little anecdote that people may find interesting, I went over to the lieutenant governor's office because I needed some help. I'm in the minority party, and it makes sense if you can have a majority member, Republican, carry your bills over in the Senate. And while I was sitting there uh, waiting to meet with Jeff Duncan's staff, uh, Senator Unterman walked in. And she asked, uh, who's carrying your bill? And I said, that's what I'm here to discuss. And, and she volunteered. She said, I'll do it. And I'm a forgiving person, and I like to move forward. And, and so I said, okay, let's partner together. And that's how it happened this year. I didn't know that. So what do you think changed? Um, I think that she saw that the policy was right that we had put into place in 2016. And, and I wasn't as well known in 16 as I am now. And I think I built the reputation of doing my homework and getting the policy right. And so she probably just felt a lot more comfortable in terms of being willing to work with me. Huh. Um, that's fascinating. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, the Affordable Care Act fight, because that is still ongoing. Georgia's right in the thick of this latest legal battle. The state is one of 18 suing to overturn the health care law arguments were, were this week. Uh, we have no idea when a decision will come down, but it will be momentous. Patricia, But what we do know is these legal battles, they're not dying down. Oh my gosh, these legal battles are not dying down. And uh, the the three-judge panel that's reviewing this, uh, the earlier lower court case where the state of Texas struck down the Affordable Care Act uh, is made up of uh, two Republicans and one Democrat. And the Republicans were asking questions that gave healthcare experts reason to pause and say, oh my goodness, this court might be looking at also striking down the Affordable Care Act at this level, um, or perhaps considering striking it down only in the 18 states that have brought the challenge, mm -hmm. among which Georgia is one of them. Um, so uh, my understanding is that the way that these the arguments went left people who care about the Affordable Care Act extremely worried about the, the fate of the bill, but also left Republicans very concerned because uh, nationally Republicans took a huge hit in House races um, over issues related to the Affordable Care Act and Republicans' failure to have a replacement ready to go in case the Affordable Care Act is struck down. Um, and there, Republicans, I can tell you, covering Capitol Hill, mm -hmm. have no plan <laughs> to replace it if it is struck down. So there is panic throughout the land on all sides, and I think it's <laughs> well warranted. Oh, Chris, that's your cue. Governor Deal's administration was an ardent opponent of the expansion of Medicaid and, and fought some other tenets of, of the Affordable Care Act. Right. Why? Well, first of all, we couldn't afford the, the outright expansion of, of Medicaid expansion your, during our time. Your concern was long-term. It was long-term financial cost to the, to the state. Second, implementation of 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 budgetary concerns with it it's hard to get out and explain the 30 second soundbite uh, to the georgia poet you know do you know every year that we pay three million dollars to the federal government just to tell the federal government how many people are on our medicaid rolls do you know that we're subject to certain uh, litigation for the federal government just because we're self-providers of our health care we should be exempt uh from at the federal from the federal government in the affordable care act do you know that we have expanded uh, just from the woodworking effect of the Affordable Care Act over the course of the six to eight years, just for the law going into effect and paid for it every year out of the state coffers. And woodworking effect is basically people effect. who d d realize that they're eligible? Uh, that are eligible, that the law says mandate you will cover these and you will pay for it. That's not necessarily expansion that we paid for during with our FMAP uh, cost sharing. Uh, those things in terms of of, of Georgia's partnership with the federal government, the Affordable Care Act, uh, could be lessened on behalf of the implementation of it. There are other things that seem to work well 
and that Republicans have acknowledged. A lot of the parts of the Affordable Care Act were Republican ideals that were put together to try to get Republican support for the legislation when it was when it was passed. So there's a lot of things in it that could be impossibly kept. What Patricia talked about is what I read this morning is it looks like that if it's overturned, it would only be overturned in those 18 states. So what happens to Georgia if it, if it does? Is there a plan to replace? I haven't seen a plan, but I can, <laughs> I can, uh, I can certainly we can help someone put one together at the federal level. The president said it's secret and he's going to uh, announce it and unveil it after the election. Is I think the latest I heard on the plan to reduce costs and everything. It's, so we know, Representative, but there, there, there would be sweeping consequences in Georgia if if this lawsuit uh, from Georgia and the 17 other states succeeded. There would be, and, and I think uh, two issues. One is political uh, and, and one is policy-wise. The political, um, I don't think I'd want to be a Republican in November 2020 running and trying to explain no longer having coverage per, for pre-existing conditions. They're going to lose on that, and they're going to lose on that big, especially in the metro areas, the, the competitive areas within um, uh, metro Atlanta, 6th and 7th congressional district. That's, that's going to be a real challenge. But in terms of the policy, we're in a different place now um, than we were uh, several years ago, and now we can't afford it. The, the math is there in terms of Medicaid expansion. And, and the other thing that I'll throw out there very quickly is in terms of rural hospitals. Ninety percent of the rural hospital closures in the United States have happened in states that have not expanded Medicaid. It is the number one thing that we can do to boost and strengthen those communities. So this is this is... It's, it's been the number one issue for years. It's going to probably continue to be the number one issue. And rural hospitals was something that Governor Deal's administration grappled, but there's about two dozen that either were closed or on or in financial dire straits um, in the last decade or so. Uh, and it's a hard issue to, to, to grapple with. It's a hard issue to grapple with. Actually passed legislation for a commission to, to it actually still stands and makes recommendation. We have grants, rural stabilization grants that go out to these hospitals where you, we looked at the implementation of care whether or not does a rural hospital need to have, and I'm, these are hypothetical, 10, 15 beds, or do they need to have an emergency care facility with one to two beds where they can treat and then transition that patient to a, a nearby facility that can can be sustained? Do we need to have a, a full-fledged hospital in every county in, in the state? Uh, there needs to be a business model applied to uh, the existing facilities. And that's what the commission has looked at. That's what they're taking upon in a management. Uh, Terry England has, has played the, a leadership role in this uh, effort. I think you saw legislation passed this past year that uh, will move forward in, in, in terms of, I think you'll see additional legislation come next year, my personal opinion, in regard to assist with this effort. Um, but it, 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 it is a very important issue in terms of the Affordable Care Act. But let's not lose track of the fact that Georgia... I, I, I know it's nuts and bolts, but Georgia pays $2 million just to tell the federal government how many people we have on our, in our health care system, in our SHBP uh, health care system. We should be exempt as a large self-provider of health care instead of being subject to the same uh, regulations that others are faced in, in the ACA Act, and, and we're not. And so common sense reform should be taken into effect and into account in my in my we're my gonna have we're gonna have to leave it at there um that will do it for today's political rewind i'd like to thank our guest chris riley former chief of staff for governor nathan deal patricia murphy a columnist for three different outlets and state representative scott holcomb of decab and gwinnett and thank you for listening remember if you missed any part of the show or if you liked it so much that you want to listen again you can find that on gpbnews.org or wherever you get your podcast and we'll talk to you again friday at two <laughs>